thank you all so much for coming. My name is Laura, and I'm really excited to be here today to share with you um, what I wish I had known when I started talking about certain things with people. Um, when I first started in ministry with Lutherans for Life seven years ago, I had all kinds of ideas about what it would look like and how it would go, and I made a lot of mistakes. Um, so this presentation is really what I have learned um, what I have seen works and what I've seen doesn't work, and really how I've come to the conclusion that oftentimes our motivations are the most important thing when we're talking about controversial topics, why we think the way we think. So we really need to understand why people think the way we think rather than just focus on how to change people's minds. So you're not gonna change anyone's mind if you don't understand them, if you don't understand where they're coming from. So I'm gonna talk a lot about mistakes I've made and how I can help you avoid those mistakes. Um, and we're also gonna just talk a lot about the information. So just information and tools that you can use when you move forward and you have these kind of conversations with people. Um, I'm going to apologize right now. I'll probably have to sit. <laughs> um, standing up right now for an hour is not probably going to happen. So if I sit, can everyone still, is this still work for you guys? Okay, good. Um, so I also have my wonderful husband who's helping me. This is Mike. So say thank you to Mike. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start and I'm going to ask you a question. And I want everyone to think about this and then shout out your answer um, in a Ra random, chaotic, but also so I can hear what you're saying kind of way. Does that make sense? Okay, so raise your hand first if you've ever had a conversation with someone about a controversial topic. Everyone. You probably wouldn't be in this room if you hadn't. Okay, I want you to describe how that conversation went in one word. Escalating, stressful, Frustrating, loud, stubborn, annoying. What did you say? Uncomfortable. Anyone else? Say that again. Chaotic. Yeah. I hear frustrating, chaotic, confusing, annoying, aggressive. Yeah. This is how these conversations tend to go. And you know, I said that when I started at Lutherans for Life, I had all these ideas of how this job would go. Like, babies are awesome, everyone loves babies, this is gonna be easy, I'm just gonna talk to people about how awesome babies are. And then I actually started talking to people and I realized, oh, people have all kinds of different opinions. They're very strong opinions. And I would say the wrong thing and I would get confused and then all of a sudden this person is mad or crying. You know, we have this idea about how these conversations are gonna go, that it's gonna be one person, this is my opinion. And the other person, well, that's a good point, but this is my opinion, and let's still be friends. And they hug and walk away, right? But most oftentimes, what it ends up looking like is like this. Anger, right? No, you're not listening to me. No, this is what I think, and why didn't you think about this? And everyone's mad and frustrated, and you leave, and you're like, I never want to talk to that person again. How many times have you left one of those conversations and thought, I'm never, ever going to talk to that person again? Raise your hand if you've ever thought that way. Yeah, so many times I'm like, I really hope that person never comes to my booth <laughs> ever again because I totally screwed that up and I'm scared to talk to them again, right? So we have these conversations and instead of leaving with feelings of understanding and productivity and 
okay, maybe we can come to a solution together. We leave feeling mad and angry and frustrated and like we just wasted our time and maybe even we've ruined a relationship. Maybe we've lost an opportunity. So I'm scared for that person to come back to my booth and talk to me, but they're also probably never ever gonna come back to my booth and talk to me. And so now I've lost an opportunity to share the truth with them and to talk with them and to build a relationship with them because we had an angry, chaotic, unproductive conversation. So I'm gonna try to help you guys avoid that. And what I've realized is most oftentimes, most oftentimes, the reason why these controversial conversations devolve into anger and frustrating and shouting matches is because most of the time we're not talking about the same thing. I'm talking about one thing, you're talking about something else, and we're just talking over each other. And we're making our points that do a really good job of convincing people who already agree with us, but we're not actually addressing what they think and vice versa. And what I realized is that there are, everyone has a reason for why they believe what they believe, and they're usually based on four things. Four perspectives. There's four perspectives generally that help shape our worldview the way we see the world around us. Those four things are faith, reason, tradition or society, and experience or our emotions. So these four perspectives, these are the things that happen around us, that happen internally, that help shape the way we see. And so since everyone is different, everyone has different perspectives, everyone has different opinions. And so if we're talking to someone and we don't understand their perspective, we don't understand why they believe what they believe, we're never actually gonna be able to connect to them. We're just gonna yell at each other and be angry and never be productive. So we're gonna go through each of these four perspectives. We're gonna talk a little bit about how these perspectives work um, and then how that applies to, specifically today, life issues and the abortion debate. So we'll go to the next slide. So the first perspective is faith. Um, and for us, when I say in a room full of Lutheran youth, faith, the perspective of faith, what do you guys think of? God, the Bible, what we believe, right, as Christians. Well, that's part of it. Faith in your faith in religion, your faith in what scripture says, that's absolutely part of it. But at its heart, faith is simply something you believe to be true. Confidence in something or someone and it's not based on any kind of proof. It's not based on evidence. It's not based on physical, tangible things. It's just based on what you believe. So it's not necessarily provable. I could give you all kinds of evidence for scripture, but I really can't prove that God exists. It's based on faith, faith that's been written on our hearts, right? But people have faith in all kinds of things that aren't scripture, right? So it could be, religious, like we think of, or it could just be those gut feelings we have, instincts. Um, how many of you have ever, you know, had an idea about something and someone asks you a why and you're like, I don't know, I just know that it's true. It just feels right. How many of you have ever felt that way? Yeah. Well, that just feels right. I can't really justify it. It's just my gut. It's what my gut tells me. Faith can be a really, really strong thing when we're talking about people's beliefs because it's not necessarily based on proof, but it's based on our gut, it's very hard to change someone's faith. It's very hard to change someone's core beliefs, things that 
You can't show them a piece of paper and say, but look, you're wrong, because it's a belief thing. It's a faith thing. Um, but we, so we have to be aware of what people believe to be true when we're having these kind of conversations. But from the perspective of a Christian, having faith and having scripture can be really useful tool in talking about life issues. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Next slide. The next one is reason. And these are things that can be proven. So the perspective of reason is, you know, you've heard people, you know, you know those people that they don't really care what you think. They want to know what you know. They want to know what can be proven. Well, I don't care. Show me, show me where the truth is. Show me what, where the evidence is. So reason is based on evidence, logic, science, philosophy. It doesn't matter how you feel. This is what the facts say. This is what the evidence say. So these are things that can be proven, whether tangibly through scientific processes or logicked out through logical reasoning. Um, but it doesn't matter. It's not about feelings or faith. It's about evidence and reason and logic. Next one. Um, the next one is tradition. Um, I think we forget about this one a lot, um, but I think it's really, really important when we talk about how people think about things, and I think it might be one of the most subtle perspectives. It affects everyone, but we don't even necessarily know that it's doing that. Um, so this is this idea of we are affected, what we think about things is affected by the way other people around us think about things. Um, so first of all, we're in a, we're a group of Lutherans, so how many of you have ever heard the phrase, well, that's the way it's always been? We can't change the carpet in the sanctuary. It's always been that color. It'll throw off the paint scheme. Or, we can't change that date for, for this event. It's always this weekend, and I plan my whole calendar around this weekend. Why do we need to change this? That's the way it's always been. So we have strong feelings based on the culture around us, based on the, the traditions we have. Um, so these are our cultural values. What do we as a society all agree on? There are certain things that we all agree on as a society. You know, murder is wrong. Raise your hand if you think murder is wrong. Okay, please everyone raise your hand or I'm gonna be a little scared <laughs> if someone thinks that that's okay, right? You know. Don't kick puppies, okay? Yeah, we agree, don't do that, right? Our cultural values, things that we hold, and you know, it goes on to things about patriotism and the traditions we have around that, all these different concepts. We have these in our churches that affect the way we think about the way we do things as a church. Um, so society, group think, it affects the way we think about certain issues. Um, it can also be peer pressure. I think a lot of times when we talk about peer pressure, especially with Youth, we think of it as a bad thing, you know, ooh, you're gonna be peer pressured into doing drugs or alcohol or doing things like that or making bad choices. Well, peer pressure can also be a good thing, you know? If everyone around you is like, hey dude, that's a bad choice, don't do that. None of us are gonna do that. You really shouldn't make that choice. You might not make that choice because the people around you are encouraging you to do good things. So peer pressure is, can be bad, but it can also be good. You know, we, we all choose to agree in a society where we don't randomly going around slapping people because people will think we're bad if we do that. And we don't want people to think we're bad, so we're not gonna go around slapping people. Or, or simple things like, you ever been in an elevator and someone comes up and they stand like, right next to you, even though there's this whole elevator, has that ever happened to you? 
It doesn't happen very often. Why? Because everyone would think that was weird. And you don't want people to think you're weird. Sorry, I apologize. Even, even if you are weird, you don't want people to think that. And even if you're never going to see them again, you don't want to... We try to avoid negative social interactions. So we follow certain rules, unspoken rules, like not standing right next to someone in an elevator because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. So it affects the way other people think about issues, affects the way we think about issues or the way we think about behavior. We see this a lot in our laws and customs. I think a lot of times we think that the way people think will change the law. How many of you have ever thought that? Like, we need to change people's minds on an issue and then the laws will change. Actually, we see it actually usually happens the other way around. Most major, like, when you think of the big things in our country, most of these things, the laws changed before people's minds changed. And as soon as the law changed, then people are like, oh, well, if the law says this is bad, then this has got to be bad. Or, in the case of abortion, if the law says this is okay, then it must be okay. Public opinion about abortion was very negative before it was made legal. And as soon as it was made legal, public opinion for abortion changed. Um, we saw the same thing with um, the gay marriage debate. Um, we were pretty split until it was legalized and then people started changing. Um, we saw the same thing back in the 1800s with slavery. Abolitionism, ending slavery, was actually quite unpopular until it actually happened. And then everyone's like, well, duh. So sometimes the laws change first. Why is that? Because we seem to put a certain level of respect on the law. And what does the law say? That determines the way we think about things. It changes the way we think about things. Sometimes just because we never thought about it before. Like if I've never thought about something before and then all of a sudden there's this great legal debate going on on television, now I have to think about it. Now I have to make a, you know, have an opinion and hearing what people say about it and what the law says about it might change the way I think about it too. So we have to think about how society influences our opinions on issues as well. The last one is experience. Um, and out of all of these, I think experience is the most powerful thing. Our experiences with issues and our experiences affect the way we think about things more than anything else. Um, this is a personal connection with an issue um, or a circumstance. And it can be direct or indirect. So what do I mean by that? So it could be something that actually happened to me. So I had this experience with adoption. And so this is the way I think about adoption. Or it could be something that happens to someone I'm close to or someone I know. So it could be my friend's coworker had an experience with adoption and this is what it was like. So that's the way I think about it. It doesn't really matter if it's direct or indirect. Personal stories, people's stories and connections with an issue, emotional connection with an issue, totally frames the way they see it. Um, and it doesn't matter how many pieces of paper of statistics I can put in front of them. If that goes against their personal experience, they're still going to think the way they think. So we have to understand that people have these personal experiences with issues. Because sometimes you can go into a conversation with someone who may have experienced exactly what you're talking about, and you don't know that. So you can say something 
that can be extremely offensive or hurtful. And you're not trying to be offensive or hurtful. It's not our goal, obviously, but we can be because we don't know where they come from and what they've lived and what their experiences are. And that might end that opportunity to really make a connection with them. So I'm gonna show you a little bit about what this might look like in a real world scenario because this is an actual real world scenario that I'm gonna show you. So next slide. I don't know if anybody recognizes the people in this picture. Um, so the guy on the left, anybody recognize who that is? Bill Nye the science guy, Bill, 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 right? Okay, what about the guy on the right? Does anybody know who that is? Ken Ham, okay, good. So we have some people who know. So Bill Nye, um, the science guy, right? And Ken Ham. Ken Ham, um, you know about Bill Nye, his show and all that. What you might know, not know about um, Bill Nye is he's a very staunch atheist, and he's a very staunch evolutionist. Sorry, I'm going to sneeze, so if it just randomly comes out, I apologize. Um, so he talks a lot about how evolution is a theory that developed the whole world, and talks a lot about how the biblical view of Christianity, God said, and it was, seven-day creation, is not accurate, and that it's impossible to believe that and be a good scientist. This is what he believes. Um, Ken Ham, on the right, he um, is the creator of a organization called Answers in Genesis. Um, he has a museum in Kentucky um, called the Creation Museum. There, You might have heard of them because they built a life-size ark, um, which I haven't been to. I saw it when they were building, and I haven't been since it's been done. But it's pretty cool. Um, and he, his Creation Museum is all, it's like when you go to the Science Museum, but instead of talking about how these dinosaurs were 65 million years old, it shows them like hanging out with Adam and Eve, right? So this is... This is what creation from a biblical perspective is. So Ken Ham challenged Bill Nye to a debate on the subject of creationism. Specifically, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, um, they wanted to debate whether or not believing in creationism, as the Bible describes, so seven days, God said, and it was, if you can believe that and be a good scientist. So is that a valid worldview for being a scientist? This was the debate topic. So he invited Bill Nye to come to the Creation Museum, have this debate. It was on YouTube. I watched it for about 10 minutes, and then I was so frustrated that I turned it off. <laughs> um, because you had Bill Nye over here saying, you can't be a scientist and believe this because look at the fossils. And Ken Ham would be like, well, yes, you can because look at this engineer or look at this guy who invented this thing. And then they go back and forth and what about the fossils and what about this? And it was pretty much how this debate went was summed up in this image right here. Um, and I think whoever made this meme was trying to be like mean to Ken Ham, like from the, the link that I found. Um, but I actually think it's a really perfect summary of how this debate went. The moderator, this is an actual question that was asked at the debate. And the moderator asked, gentlemen, what, if anything, would change your mind? Bill Nye said, evidence. If you prove to me with evidence that there was a seven-day creation, God said, and there was, then I'll change my mind. Ken Ham said, nothing. You cannot change my mind. It's impossible. It won't happen. So... 
Were they ever going to connect? Why not? Because they had different perspectives. Which perspective do you think Bill Nye was debating from? What was most important to him in his debate? Reason, yeah, give me evidence. I need to see the physical. That's why he kept bringing up things like fossil records and geology and things like that. Ken Ham, he's, he's a scientist. He believes in reason and evidence too, but ultimately what's most important to him? His faith. Evidence is great. I love evidence. That's why he has the Creation Museum with all the evidence of the seven-day creation that exists. But ultimately... He looks for the evidence for what he's already decided on. And what is that? That scripture is true, that God is real, and nothing, nothing he sees, nothing anyone could tell him would ever change his mind. Now, two people arguing from faith and reason, do you think they're ever going to connect? No. Now, if Ken Ham had shifted and only talked from a place of evidence... Do you think maybe they might have connected? Maybe a little bit more. If Bill Nye had shifted a little bit and talked more about the worldview of evolution and how people came to believe that, do you think maybe they could have connected a little bit more? Maybe. But ultimately, they were not speaking the same language. And so I turned the debate off because I was so frustrated by listening to two people convince people who already agreed with them on YouTube that this is the answer and not do anything to convince the person that they were actually debating. Ken Ham did a really good job of summarizing the Christian worldview of the seven-day creation. I thought he did a really good job, but he did not do anything to, to meet the people on Bill Nye's side who believe differently, which is a huge missed opportunity for Ken Ham as a Christian whose ultimate job is not to convince people that Bill Nye is wrong, but to convince them that God is right. Does that make sense? So they weren't talking the same language. Next slide. Because everyone has a reason for why they believe what they believe and why they're arguing what they are arguing. And our job, when we're having these conversations with people, and you might not agree with this, and I didn't at first, but now I do, our job is to figure out what that reason is. First and foremost, is to understand why they believe what they believe. And the reason for that is that we're not trying to win arguments. And that's really hard for me to say because I love being right. <laughs> Raise your hand if you like being right. We all like being right. I, I, I particularly like being right. People used to tell me that I'd be a great lawyer, and I used to say no because I would get frustrated and like take my shoe off and throw it at someone because they didn't agree with me because I really like being right. <laughs> I like it when I have that gotcha moment. Oh, oh, you can't respond. I gotcha right there. Those are great. They make us feel good. But ultimately, our job as Christians when we're having conversations with people, especially when we're having conversations with people about our faith or about topics that affect our faith, like the abortion debate, our job is not to win the argument, but to win the person. Our job is not to win the argument, but to win the person. Now, what does that mean? It means that sometimes it's better to lose the argument and maintain the relationship than it is to press the issue 
and lose the opportunity to have another conversation. Or lose the opportunity for someone else to have a, another conversation. Let me explain. So if I'm talking to someone and I get them to that gotcha moment, how likely, they might, they might feel like, okay, you got me, but they might still not agree with me. I might not have gotten to the point where they're willing to change their view. Now say in a year from then, someone else has that conversation with them. How likely do you think they're going to be to listen to that person? Not very likely. They're like, I've heard this before. You're just going to make me feel bad about myself, make me feel stupid. I don't want to have this conversation. So they close down and they don't have that conversation. Now, if I have a conversation with someone and I see an opportunity for a gotcha, but I know they're not there yet, they're not ready to change, I might just soften a little bit and try to get them to just think a little differently maybe, but be okay with leaving it hanging there and say, you know what, that was a good conversation. I think we both, you know, we both had some good points and I enjoyed talking to you and kind of leave it there. And I didn't change their mind, but they also can at the end of conversation agree and say, yeah, that was a good conversation. Then a year from now, after they've had time to think and process, they come up with someone else who wants to have a conversation with them. Are they gonna be willing to listen? Yes, they're gonna be willing to talk about it again because their last experience was a good one. So it might not be me who changes their mind, it might not be me that wins the argument, but the goal is not for us to be right, but it's for them to know the truth. And that might be about life and what God thinks about life. It might be about God. Because honestly, I don't share about life issues. I don't talk about abortion just because I think babies are awesome and because I think abortion is wrong, even though both of those things are true. I talk about life issues because I think everyone needs to know that they are an important person to God, that he loves them, that he died for them, that he created them, that he redeemed them on the cross. I think everyone needs to know that from the unborn to the woman who's struggling with a difficult situation in life and doesn't know what to do to the people who have made choices that they can't take back. I think they all need to know that because I want them to know God. I want them to know Jesus. I don't want them to know that Laura is really smart. I want them to know that Jesus is very loving and very merciful. And that's our goal. And if we're so busy trying to win arguments, we're not going to win the, the person. And that's really what we want to do. So I'm going to go through each of these perspectives. Um, and I'm going to talk about how, what I call the four life Christian worldview. So if I were to apply each of these four perspectives to abortion, to the life issues, what would that look like? So that you can kind of see if someone's arguing from this perspective, here's how you can respond. Here's how you can talk about it. We'll kind of, kind of go through there. And then at the end, we're going to give you a chance to practice. And I'm going to have you give me um, some examples of justifications for abortion that you've heard. And we're going to talk about how, how that conversation might go with the goal in mind to get people thinking and to get people comfortable with talking and actually addressing what they believe rather than just saying what I want to say and not caring what they're saying back to me. Does that make sense? Okay, so first one. One more. 
There you go. Faith. So we're going to first talk, talk about faith. And I'm going to make this easy. We're going to start out easy um, because I don't think people, especially on the abortion topic, I don't necessarily think they argue from a perspective of faith that often. I think more often it's emotion and it's um, like it's experience. And I think that it's society and culture. I think those are the two main ones. But we'll talk about faith. And especially I want to talk about um, how the Bible talks about life issues. Because believe it or not, this is a controversial topic even within the church of God. Um, there are many, many churches that take a very different stance than our church does on life issues. And there are Christians and Lutherans in our own church that have a different stance. And believe it or not, I have had many conversations with people of, who are Christian from a different perspective than me who use or try to use scripture as evidence for why they believe what they believe about life issues. I think this is the easiest thing for a Christian to say, uh-uh. <laughs> and I think we have a lot of evidence of how scripture affirms what we believe about life, that all life is precious and created in God's image from the very beginning. So the Bible, I believe, makes it absolutely clear with really no other room for discussion, that life is sacred from the very moment of conception. And I can give you three scriptures that point to that. Um, the first one is Psalm 139. Raise your hand if you know what Psalm 139 is. I think they read it last night at the mass event. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your ways are wonderful. I know that very well and talks about how every single day of our life was already decided by God before a single one of them came to be. Um, I love the imagery of knit together in my mother's womb, that it was intentional. I'm a knitter, I like to knit things. And I don't just take a ball of yarn and throw it across the room and poof, it turns into a scarf. I have to think about it, I have to do it intentionally, and I have to have a reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's how God made you, it wasn't just throw some cells, and oh, it's a person. God intentionally knit us in our mother's womb to be exactly who we are with the gifts and the talents and the abilities that we have. From the color of our hair to the sound of our voice to the way our brain works, it's all part of God's plan for your life. Um, even the things you don't like about yourself. Um, God has a plan for why he made you that way. Um, and that's from the very moment of conception. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. Um, Psalm 51, this one's kind of a little, a little less happy and fluffy. Psalm 51 is, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From that very moment I was conceived, I was a sinner. I don't like to think about little baby Hemi in here being a little sinner, but they are. They inherited my sin, passed down generation to generation, and they're a sinner. And if you want to believe in original sin, all you need to do is look at a two-year-old or a three-year-old, or and I've asked my sister permission, just look at my nephew <laughs> if you want to know what original sin is. My, I love my nephew. He's adorable, and I, he's wonderful. Um, but he can be a little stinker. <laughs> um, he would... My sister, like the rule is don't touch the trash can. And she would say, Timothy, don't touch a trash can. And he would look at her and take one finger and touch a trash can. Um, one time she was going to the bathroom and he walked in and threw a potato at her. Like, 
where did he get a potato and why did he feel like it was important to throw it at her? <laughs> you know, no one taught him to do that. Like he's a kid, he's a baby, you know, he's three now, but he was younger then when these things happened. No one taught him to be naughty. He was just naughty. All of us from the very beginning. I mean, I'm sure after this baby comes, they're going to cry and it's going to be for no other reason than they just want to cry. <laughs> you know, At original sin, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That means they need a savior and they need to hear that message of the gospel from the moment they were conceived. The last one is Luke 1. And this is probably my favorite. I call this the Jesus was a fetus verse. Um, so if you ever read Luke 1, this is the story of the Annunciation, Mary finding out she's going to have baby Jesus, and where does she go? She goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was also pregnant at the time with John the Baptist. Yeah, so you have baby Jesus in Mary and baby John the Baptist, fetus Jesus and fetus John. And Mary goes up to Elizabeth, and does she say, hey, I'm pregnant? No. Who talks first? It's Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say? She knows that she's in the presence of the mother of her savior because she felt the baby inside of her leap for joy at being in the presence of his savior. So what do we have going on here? We have fetus Jesus, who is already true God and true man, fully human. And you have fetus John the Baptism, John the Baptist, who is, already has faith in the womb already has the ability to recognize and believe in his savior in the womb, and nobody said anything. It's a miracle and a, and a concept that's hard for us to understand, but it is evidence in scripture that the unborn is sacred, fully human from the moment of conception, with the ability to have faith. So you know, people ask all kinds of questions about what happens to a baby who dies before they're born, whether through abortion or through loss. And I can never say definitively that baby, right? I, I, can, I just don't know. But I do know that babies can have faith, and I know that faith saves. And so I believe that those babies are with Jesus because Scripture shows us that they can have faith without anybody saying anything at all, which is so incredible to me. Um, so Scripture makes it clear. So if anyone ever tells you the Bible never says anything about abortion, well, that's true. It never says anything specifically. It doesn't say that word but it talks about the unborn and it talks about the value and who they are and what they are and whose they are. And so point them to that if anybody ever says something like that about the Bible and abortion. Okay, next one. Talk about reason. Um, so two parts to this, science and logic. So we talked about sciences, um, the part of the reason perspective where it's evidence. I can see it on paper. And then logic is that philosophy, those philosophical arguments that people make. Um, so science shows us from the very moment of conception that the unborn is a unique living human being. That's what science shows us. You can go to any embryology textbook. It doesn't matter when it was written or who wrote it. They will all say the same thing, that life, human life begins at fertilization. So sperm-egg fusion. You have sperm from the dad. You have egg from the mom. They come together. And at that instant, it is no longer sperm and egg. It is a unique individual human being. So it has its own DNA, it has its own, it's satisfying all the, the abilities of life, and as long as it's allowed to continue down its natural, self-directed trajectory, it will become a teenager at NYG in 14 years, right? 
That's how this progression works. Um, and it's not the mother who's directing the baby to develop. The baby is directing this. I, I don't do anything here. I just have heartburn, you know, <laughs> and swollen ankles. I don't, I'm not doing anything. It's doing it all by itself. I don't have to tell it what to do. It's self-directed. Its development is self-directed and it's not part of my body. I don't need this baby in me. It's not really helping me very much. It needs me, but I don't need it, right? It's not part of my body. It is its own unique individual human being. And that science is clear. So if someone says, well, you know, it's unscientific to be pro-life because it's not really a person. Well, okay, what is your definition of a person? But let's look at, it is human. So we can get to the conclusion that, okay, we're not going to touch on what is, makes a person a person yet. We're just going to look at what makes a human a human. And what makes a human a human? Does it have human DNA? Yes. Is it a unique human being so it's not the same as the mother? Different DNA than me? Yes. So, okay, it's an individual. And is it alive? Yes. So it's a living, individual human being. That's what the science shows. And just go there. Then, if they say, okay, well, I agree with you. It's a human It's a human. It is alive, but it's not a person yet. Yes, yeah, so, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by being a person? And they might say something like, well, it doesn't have all the same abilities as persons have. Like, like you and I, we are people. I'm a person that has personhood because I can do certain things or certain abilities or meet certain qualifications. Well, then we can say, okay, that's a different conversation. That's, personhood is different then. Let's talk about that. And then that shifts from the science, what I see on paper. I can see in the Petri dish what happens to an embryo when it's fertilized and how it grows and how it's developed. We can see that in the womb through ultrasound technology and things like that. We've moved on from that. And now we're talking about philosophy. We're making a philosophical argument about what a person is. And that's where we can logically show proof through logical reasoning that the unborn has personhood, that it is a person from conception. And there's really no difference between a human being and a human person. They're the same thing. If you are human, you are a person. And the way we do this is through something we call the sled test. Um, I'm going to go through the sled test in really, really fast. And there's some people can talk through the sled test and it can take six hours. So I'm not going to take six hours to go through the sled test with you. We're going to do the sled test in a nutshell. So S L E D sled. The first one is size. So the unborn is not a human person because it's doesn't look like a human person. It does, you know, I, I, seen recently someone posting on Facebook like an embryo of an elephant and the embryo of a human at the very early stages and they kind of look the same. And so they say, if you can't tell the difference, then obviously it's not really a person because they don't look like a person. It's like, well, yeah, well, we all started out as one cell and you can't really tell the difference. But what is the difference? One has elephant DNA, one has human DNA. Very, very different, right? So size, size appearance, saying that basically you're only a person if you meet certain size or appearance qualifications. Now, where have we heard before that you're not a person if you don't look a certain way? We have fought entire wars over the concept that you're not a person if you don't look like me. 
that because you don't look like me, because you have dark skin, I can own you. And we fought an entire war, a very, very, very bloody war over that concept. And yet we're still having that same argument today that because you don't look like me or you don't meet a certain physical qualification, that you are less than me, that you are less human, that you are not a person. We do not believe that. We believe that all human beings are created equally and we can show that if it's a human being from the very beginning, it's the same. It just needs time to grow. It will look like you, don't worry. As it grows, it will look more like a human. I remember our 10-week ultrasound. It, you can't really see much at a 10-week ultrasound other than a little heartbeat. You can see little arm buds. Those little arms and feet were growing. And by the time we got to our 20-week ultrasound, it was very clearly a human being, right? It needs time to develop, but it, isn't, it doesn't change what it is because it's still growing and because it's still developing. Um, which leads to the next one, L, which is level of development. So you hear, well, it's not a person because it can't do certain things yet. So it's things like can't breathe on its own, it can't make rational decisions, things like that. I mean, how many 10-day-olds babies are making rational decisions, right? All they know is I'm hungry or I'm wet or ow, that light is bright or I'm sad because I'm not in that comfy, warm, secure environment that I used to be in. But we wouldn't say that the 10-day-old is not a human, right, or a person. Of course it is. It just hasn't reached a level of development. It doesn't have the same abilities as me or someone else. But we don't say that they're less of a human because they can't do the same things. Let me give you an example. Um, so we all have different levels of ability, right? Things that we can't do. Things that we can do. Um, my brother is a really good basketball player. I can't shoot a free throw to save my life. If literally, like if it was shoot that, make that free throw or you'll die, I will see you all at my funeral because I'm not going to make it. But does that make my brother more of a person than me? Of course not. A little more serious. People have all kinds of different abilities. Some people have disabilities, things that they are not able to do. Maybe they're not able to speak. Maybe they're not able to walk on their own. Maybe they're not able to eat or breathe on their own. But do we say that they're no longer a person because of their current abilities? No, they are who they are because they are a human being. Intrinsically, this is where their value comes from. We don't say that they're different, that, they're, that they have different value or human worth because their abilities are different than you and I. And it's the same thing with the unborn. Their abilities may be different than you and I. They might not have reached that level of development that you and I have. But they are still a human being and they just need that time to develop into what they will become. The next one is E, which is environment. Um, environment, so where you are, determines your value as a human being. So this is actually implicit in our abortion laws in our country. So currently, if you are in the womb, it is legal for you to be killed. If you are out of the womb, it is illegal for you to be killed. So five seconds before birth, legal. Five seconds after birth, illegal. What is the difference between a baby five seconds before birth and five seconds after birth? The only difference is their, their location. 
their environment, where they are. Um, there is nothing magical about the birth canal. <laughs> if, it's, if it's a person before, it's a person after. And you can have people in, you can be in a hospital and in one room they are doing a late-term abortion on a baby and in the next room they are doing everything desperately they can to save a premature infant. Same age, same level of development, all of that. The only difference is what? Their location. Now, we do not change our human value just because our location changes. How many of you live at this convention center? None of us. But you all came here, right? Did your human value change because you left wherever you live and came here? No, you are still exactly who you were before. Maybe a little more tired, but you are still exactly who you were. Our location does not determine our value as a human being. We are a human person because we are human, not because of we live outside of wombs. That doesn't determine our value. The last one is degree of dependency. And this is um, that idea that it's not a person because it's dependent on the mother, fully dependent on the mother for everything, right? Um, this is true. My, my little baby is fully dependent on me for everything. It can't do it on its own. But the same thing will be true the hour after my baby is born and 10 days after they're born and 10 years after they're born. And even when I was in college, I was still calling my mom and asking her questions and I'm 30 years old and I still ask my mom and ask her questions. Dependency doesn't go away, right? Um, so we like to bring out that little baby and say, if this baby is a person and they're completely dependent on their mother, then why does, is the unborn not a person just because they're dependent on their mother? Um, I talked about my nephew before, and here, here's a scenario. You know, say my sister was just so tired of this naughty boy throwing potatoes at her, and she said, I need a vacation. I need a break. So I'm going to put this baby in a closet, and I'm going to, because so then can't get into anything, I'm going to go on vacation for a week and just, just leave them. What do you think would happen? Auntie Laura would come and rescue Timothy, <laughs> and he would be fine. But what would happen? He wouldn't survive. If he couldn't get out of the closet, he needs water, and he needs food, and he needs you know, fresh air, and he can't get any of that in the closet. And he would not survive. He would die. Why? Because even at three years old, he's completely dependent on his mother. Maybe not physically connected through an umbilical cord, but he needs her. And so what would happen to my sister if she did that? She would go to jail for a very, 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 very long time. Because we have laws specifically in place to protect those who are more dependent. So our society, this is kind of getting to the next one, society, we have laws in place that say you are dependent you need that person to take care of you. And if they don't, there are consequences for that because they are responsible for you. And yet we look at the most dependent individuals in our society, the unborn, and say, because you're dependent, you don't have value and they don't have to take responsibility for you. It doesn't make sense. Logically, it doesn't make sense. So if someone's arguing from a place of logic and they're trying to say that there's a difference between a human being and a human person because of these different things, we can point to how there's not a difference. There is not a difference between them. Especially if you can bring out a two-year-old usually is a really good example and say, look, there's not a difference between a two-year-old 
and a 12-year-old in their value, even though there's a difference in all of these different things, so there's also not a difference in a two-year-old and a 20-week-old unborn in their value just because of these things. Um, so we can logically show that. So whatever they're arguing, we focus on that and we address that because that's what their perspective is. Okay, the next one. Okay, tradition. As a society and a culture, we believe that everyone is entitled to certain rights. Is this true or false? True, yeah. We, we generally believe in, hum, who believes in human rights? Okay, good. Just like the murder thing. Yeah, we all, we all generally agree in human rights. Now, everyone has slightly different definitions of what human rights mean, but generally, there are certain things that we all agree on. Like we said, it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to go around randomly slapping people. I don't know if it's morally wrong, but it's certainly culturally wrong to go and stand right next to someone in an elevator if there's a whole elevator open. Those are just things you don't do, right? We agree, and we agree on these things. Well, the for life perspective is that, yes, we agree on all these things, but we also agree that these, thing, that these things apply to the unborn. Um, I think the key to talking about society and culture and how this affects people and people who are arguing in favor of abortion from this perspective is to really try to nail down the things we have in common. Because even though we may disagree on the abortion issue, we are still part of the same culture. Does that make sense? We, are, we still live in the United States of America, and yes, we are in the world, but not of the world, but we still experience the same culture as the people around us. If you're talking to someone in your school, there's a culture in your school, right? Their set of traditions and beliefs and the way people think is generally pretty similar within your school. And so look for those things that you have in common that kind of go along with the issue rather than focusing on the one thing that you disagree on. Does that make sense? So there are a lot of things that people who disagree on abortion can still agree on that have to do with abortion. So things like we, we believe that people with disabilities have just as much value as other people with dis as who don't have disabilities. Is that correct? So is it right to have an abortion just because a baby's gonna have a disability? When you put it that way, people say, hmm, I don't think so. So they might not think abortion is wrong, but they might think, okay, but that's wrong. I don't think that's right. Or, you know, they might not understand that a baby at eight weeks doesn't look like you, it doesn't have all these abilities, but they can look at a baby at 36 weeks and say, well, it can live outside of the mother, so it's wrong to kill that baby. So they might not agree on abortion, but they can agree that killing babies right before they're born might not be right. So you can focus on that one. There are a lot of things like that. Let me give you an example. So my aunt, um, I live in Washington, um, and when I moved up there a few years ago, I didn't know very many people. I knew my aunt and my grandma, and that was about it. Um, and I moved there in the summer of 2016, right after the last youth gathering. Um, and I don't know if you remember what happened a few months later in 2016, in our national culture, <laughs> um, there was a big election and a lot of people were mad. Um, and I have kind of a controversial job in a place like Seattle. Um, and it was very hard to talk about what I did for a living because people automatically assumed things about me and politics and everyone in Seattle was mad about politics in 2016. Like that's just how it was. 
Um, this also applied to my family. <laughs> um, I love my family. They're very, very close to me. But we don't always agree on politics, and we don't always agree on faith. And my aunt is a good example of that. She and I get along really well. Um, I love her dearly. I look up to her. Um, but we don't agree on politics or religion, and we probably never will. Um, so I was really hesitant to talk about my job and what I did because I'd rather have, you know, an aunt that I got along with all the time, um, than lose a relationship. Right. Um, but it came up on a drive one time we were driving, went up to a, a cabin they have, and we're having a long conversation, four hour drive. So lots of conversation and we're talking about it. And, um, she wanted to know more about why I do what I do and kind of what motivates me and so we started having this conversation and she talked a lot about why she believes what she believes. And she's a, she's a teen crisis counselor. So she works with um, youth that um, is a mental health counselor, but youth that have gone through really, really rough stuff or who are still going through rough stuff like abuse, neglect, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, eating disorders. Just the, she gets sent the hard cases basically. Um, and so she's seen it all and she's seen really, really bad circumstances that kids are raised in and really, really bad circumstances where kids are getting pregnant. And so she said, you know, I'm pro-choice and it's because I, I believe two things. I believe there are some people who should never have kids and I believe that there are some kids who would have been better off if they hadn't been born. Um, now, I hear that second statement, and I think, well, I absolutely disagree with that, right? It's always better to be born than to be killed. This is what I believe. But I knew if that's what I focused on, that we still weren't going to agree. Because why? That was her experience, and she sees the cultural, societal way that this affects her, and this affects society around her. And she wasn't going to agree with me if I focused on that. So instead, I focused on the first part of what she said, and I focused on, okay, so some people shouldn't have kids, and some people shouldn't be born. What kind of comes in common with that is, well, not getting pregnant in the first place. <laughs> and, oh, I totally agree with that. Some people should not get pregnant. <laughs> and she's like, okay, what do you mean? I said, teens shouldn't be getting pregnant, and people who are not married shouldn't be getting pregnant, and people who are not ready to have kids emotionally or physically probably shouldn't be getting pregnant. And so I talked to a lot of people about that. And she's like, well, what do you mean? Well, I said, well, I talk about the importance of making good sexual decisions. Um, I talk a lot about abstinence um, because that's what I believe is what we need to do. But I really, I focus on, you know, what the Bible says, but I also talk about just how it's healthier for you. You know, that having sex before you're married can have all kinds of mental consequences. And she's like, oh, I've seen that. That's true. I believe that too, that teens shouldn't be having sex. They, not only should they not be getting pregnant, but they shouldn't be having sex because they're not mentally ready to do it. And it causes all kinds of problems. And we're like, well, we both agree on that. She's like, well, I can get behind that part of your job. And it was like, okay. And that was kind of the end of the conversation, but we didn't agree on abortion, but we maintained an open conversation. So you might not be able to change their mind on this, that specific issue, but you can start to make a connection on things you have in common. Okay, experience. Um, so experiences have a strong effect on the way people think about the life issues. So if someone has an experience and they, with abortion specifically, it's going to be very hard to change their mind. Um, so for instance, someone 
maybe they have had an abortion themselves, or maybe they know someone who's had an abortion and they know the circumstances that led to that. And so they might say like, I see what you're saying, but I can't say that in her circumstances that it would have been good to have an abortion. And the truth is we have beautiful stories of mothers who have had children in the worst of circumstances. Um, and we've seen their families grow and these children develop and we've seen the value of life even when it's difficult. Um, and that shows us that life is precious. I could give you a hundred stories of people who have had abortions in circumstances where maybe they were raped um, and what that was like to them. Um, I, stories of a woman who said, you know, it was harder for me to overcome the abortion than it was my, the rape. Um, maybe it was someone who chose life even though they knew they got a devastating diagnosis that my baby is not going to survive. And maybe that baby didn't survive. Maybe they only lived a few hours, but they got to hold them and love them and baptize them and have that time with them. And they would never have given that up for any reason. Or maybe they were told that this was going to happen and then it didn't. Or the baby lived and didn't have the, the, the condition that they were told it was going to have. Or maybe it did, but they survived a lot longer than people thought they would. And now that child has a wonderful life. A, a life different than yours and mine, but still a wonderful life, right? So we have lots of these stories. And so when someone's coming to you from a, an experience perspective, the last thing you want to do is throw an embryology textbook at them. Because they might agree with you on that, but they still have that experience. So instead, we talk about stories. We talk about people that matter. We talk about real life examples of where life has value and meaning even in the worst of circumstances. So I wanna, I wanna practice that a little bit. So I wanna go to the next slide. Okay, so does anybody have an example of a, a justification for abortion that they've heard commonly? That baby still has value, right? We, you know, we talk about Psalm 139 and you created my inmost being. And I talked about these stories and women who have had babies and those babies have value and they've gone on to do wonderful things, right? I think there's, there's a, a woman who's a speaker here at NYG that was conceived in rape and she's a wonderful, wonderful person, right? And is doing lots of good. So, you know, it's still human and it's still a person even though they were conceived in that way. Nine times out of 10, when I ask that question, that's the first justification I always get is rape. Um, and so we're just gonna like go straight to that one because I don't have a lot of time to, to ask questions. Um, what I should have done is talk about who? Who should I have talked about? The mom, because he wasn't, he wasn't talking about the baby. Who was he talking about? The mom. And I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation and I've said exactly what I told him. And that person's like, well, you're not listening to me. You know, so now when I hear other people do that or like see it on Facebook, like, no, stop. What do they care about? Someone's experience, and that's the mother. So what should I have talked about? The experience of mothers who have gone through this and say, that is a horrible thing. I'm a woman. I can't imagine what that would be like. And I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But I don't want the woman to go through another horrible thing, which abortion is a horrible thing for a woman to go through, 
on top of what she's already gone through. You know, women who have abortions suffer from trauma from that. Um, maybe it doesn't happen immediately, but 10 years down the line, they're suffering from symptoms that are very similar to PTSD from the experience they went through. And I don't want her to have to go through that too. And instead, maybe she can see this baby as a way to find meaning in what she's gone through. You know, I, I, there's a wonderful story I heard the other day of a woman who saw how this baby was a blessing even from the horrible thing that happened to her. And she saw it as a way to find meaning and purpose in an awful thing that happened. So does this make sense now? How we, we try to see what, what they're talking about, what their focus is, and go from that. I know everyone has to go, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for coming. If you have more questions, I'll stay up here. Um, and I'd love to hear more.